come to study this evening, Psalm 18, verses 31 to 50. Last week, in verses 1 to 19, we considered the God who rescues. This morning, in the heart of the psalm, verses 20 to 30, we considered the God who justifies. And tonight, in verses 31 to 50, we're thinking about the God who gives victory. The God who gives victory. Over the last few days, the handful of politicians who are trying to become the next Prime Minister have been talking persistently about why their colleagues in the Conservative Party should vote for them to be their next party leader and our Prime Minister. Look at my track record handling the crisis of COVID as Treasurer, says Rishi Sunak. I can master detail and make tough decisions, says Liz Truss. I am in touch with ordinary party members and constituents, says Penny Mordaunt. They're having to do what most of us cringe at the thought of doing. They are having to sell themselves as that awful phrase goes. Here's what I've done. Here's what would make me a great prime minister. Here's why you should put your trust in me. Well, King David, who wrote Psalm 18, was a national leader with the sort of record and opinion polls that any of those people I've just mentioned would bite your hand off to have. David was a mighty, all-conquering king, undefeated champion on the battlefield. He was popular with his people. He was feared by his enemies. He ruled his nation well, establishing order and days of prosperity. And yet rather than sell himself, David in Psalm 18 gives all the credit for his victories and successes to the Lord his God. The stability and growth and splendor of his kingdom he knew to be a gift from God. David even hints at his kingdom going international because of God. We'll think more about that later. But he says in verse 43, You made me the head of nations. People whom I had not known served me. And so David here, this great king, gives all the glory to God for the triumph of his kingdom. And the books of Samuel and Chronicles do tell us that some foreigners joined David's army and even became subjects in David's kingdom. But of course in King Jesus, these words find wider and greater fulfillment. Everything that God provided for King David, he provided in even greater measure For and through King Jesus. And as we've seen all throughout the psalm. That's true as we've seen all throughout the psalm. The greater fulfillment of this psalm is found. When we consider the life and and death and resurrection. And the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so tonight we're going to notice three things that God provided for King David. Giving him victory. (coughs) And also things that he has provided for King Jesus. And things that he has provided for us as well. The followers of King Jesus. So first of all this evening we see a king equipped for battle. A king equipped for battle. Look at verse 32. The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. Uh, that phrase, the heights or high places, it's a way of referring to different difficult situations faced by God's people. Uh, and also places that would have re- represented threat or opposition to God's people. Uh, high places in the, the Old Testament era were often 
chosen by pagan worshippers. They would often make high hillsides the sites of idolatrous worship of one kind or another to intimidate their neighbours. David also, of course, spent many years of his life hiding in mountains and caves, uh, sometimes navigating dangerous territory to get away from King Saul. But David says he's been able to conquer high places, whatever those high places may have been, because God has protected him. In fact, he says he skipped, skipped over them like a deer. That's what the language means there. You've maybe seen in some of those nature programs how certain types of deer, uh, they, they dwell on, on really steep, jagged hillsides, and yet they can just prance across them, no problem. Uh, and David says that's what has been his experience. No matter how difficult or dangerous the situation, he's just skipped through it by God's grace. Verse, 30, verse 34 says, He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Apparently some bows were overlaid with metals of various kinds in the ancient world to make them more durable. Uh, but of course it also made them harder to bend. He had to be a particularly strong warrior to bend those bows. David says, with God's strength I could bend a bow of bronze if I had to. Verse 35, he says, You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me. The right hand is mentioned over 40 times in the Psalms and almost always it is God's right hand that the psalmist speaks of. It's a symbolic picture of all God's power, all God's strength working for or at the disposal of his people. You can imagine King David perhaps thinking back. You remember how he uh, went to face Goliath and King Saul tried to dress him in his own armor first of all. And David, a young man at that time, maybe even just a boy, uh, the chain mail perhaps dragging behind him, you might, you might imagine. Uh, and he can't lift, the, he can't lift the, the weapons that, that King Saul put into his hands. And he says, no, no, don't give me any of that. And he walks out onto the battlefield in God's strength. Looked ridiculous to the world, his little slingshot against this giant. But all through his life, and even before he faced Goliath when he was just a shepherd boy, David knew what it was to be clothed in the strength that God gives. And this great king that the nation looked to and loved and even wrote up, made, made up songs about King David. No, this great king diverts the gaze of his people through this psalm to his great God. He says, here's the, here, here's the explanation for our nation's success and our nation's prosperity and our nation's victories. Every arrow fired, every shield raised against an oncoming spear or sword, every successful campaign, God's right hand did it all. King David has been equipped for battle by his God. And King Jesus likewise was equipped for battle by his God and his Father. Jesus Christ came into the world again, like King David, when he went to face Goliath, not clothed in physical armour, but clothed in spiritual armour. The power of the Holy Spirit resting upon him. The Gospel of Luke in particular emphasises this aspect of our Saviour's ministry, that he was full of the Holy Spirit, that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. The one who equipped him for spiritual warfare. When King Jesus was in the wilderness, 
Tempted by Satan. Matthew 4 verse 1 tells us that he was led into the, into the wilderness by the Spirit. That doesn't mean that the Spirit sort of shoved Jesus into the wilderness and then abandoned him. It means that the Holy Spirit was with him and helped him and empowered him for those battles with Satan. You think as well of the, the transfiguration of Jesus. When Moses and Elijah appeared to him and spoke with him about what he was about to have to do and at Calvary when he was going to go to Jerusalem and, and die on the cross and, and on that occasion again God graciously strengthening his son Luke 22 verse 43 tells us that when Jesus was praying in spiritual agony uh, in the hours leading up to his death with the blood mingling with his sweat an angel appeared from heaven to strengthen him There was the father strengthening the son before he departed for the final battle. So important that we emphasize over and over again, friends, Jesus was and is fully God. He became also fully human. One person with two natures. And in his human nature, when he was on the earth, Jesus was constantly doing battle with Satan. But he was equipped for that battle. By the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we are to be successful in our battlefields. We need to be equipped in the same way. Every single day we can choose to put on the armour of God. That Paul speaks about so vividly. We can choose to sit down and open God's word. For another training session. Another equipping session. Or we can decide not to. And try and get by on our own strength. Those sins that we know we will be tempted with. Those sins that we know need to be entirely put to death. Those opportunities to proclaim the gospel to a colleague or a neighbour, family member. Those moments that could cause pride or impatience or anger. God has equipped us for all of it. Are we making use of his equipping? Paul says in Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armour of God. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He goes on, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances take up the shield of faith and he goes on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. And he says with these things you can extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. Friends, the evil one is waiting to fire his fiery darts at us in our homes, in our workplace, in our thoughts. And God has equipped us for those battles. The question is, are we making use of what he has provided? This time of year, uh, lots of footballers and rugby players and athletes, they, they share photos online of themselves doing extra training during the off-season so that when the season begins, they are in peak physical condition. They have the very best personal instructors. They have dietitians. Some of them have their own personal chefs. They have gym equipment. Uh, They're devoted to the task. And whatever these experts in food and exercise tell them to do, they will do it. They want to be equipped. They want to be ready for battle. God has a training regime for us. Put on the the breastplate of righteousness. Take up the shield of faith. 
and the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And by these means, friends, the Holy Spirit will empower us and strengthen us and equip us for battle. Spurgeon says, we are such infants, we cannot stand alone. But when the Lord's right hand upholds us, we are like brazen pillars which cannot be moved. David, the Lord Jesus, and each of us can be equipped for battle by the grace that God gives. So a king equipped for battle. Secondly, we see in this psalm, a, king, a king's enemies vanquished. A king's enemies vanquished. And David emphasizes several times here the, the total decisive victory that he inflicts on his enemies. He says in verses 37 to 38 about pursuing his enemies. He doesn't stop until they fall under his feet. But again, notice where does he give the credit? Verse 39. For you, God, equipped me with strength for the battle. Verse 40. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. They ran away in fear, he's saying. And those who hated me, I destroyed. I destroyed. The word there for destroyed is quite rare in the Hebrew. We, we don't find it that many times in the scriptures. But it, it means what you would imagine. It means to exterminate. To leave no trace. In fact, David's enemies were so desperate, he says, that they actually, in the face of this oncoming uh, attack from David, or the, the work of David and, and hunting them down and destroying them, it says they actually prayed for mercy. Verse 41, uh, they cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, Yahweh, David's God, but he did not answer them. Now, you might find that quite a, a stark and, and maybe even shocking verse. One writer says, bad men, bad men have appealed to God against God's servants. That's the key to this verse. Remember, these are people who have been fighting God's chosen king. Bad men have appealed to God against God's servants, but all in vain. He goes on, there are prayers to God which are no better than blasphemy. Which provoke the Lord to wrath. Some people pray as a last resort, and they pray ignorant, superstitious, false prayers, acts of desperation. They don't even know the God they're praying to. Now, of course, this is not to say, friends, that someone at the very end of their lives could not pray for the forgiveness of their sins and be saved from those sins. That's not what we're talking about here. These are people who have been fighting against God's chosen king. And in a, in a, in a show of mock, uh, uh, mock uh, repentance, they utter the name of God and hope that just by saying the name, they'll somehow get out of it. This is almost like blasphemy. God is not obliged to answer those prayers, particularly if they're prayed by people who have been persecuting his followers. There comes a time for every human being, a time known only by and decided only by God alone, when any kind of prayer for help is too late. If you spend a lifetime ignoring God, defying God, mocking God, mocking God's king and God's people, you can have no confidence that he'll hear a desperate, uh, almost a, 
a last minute act of, of desperation. You have no confidence that he will hear that prayer unless it is prayed with genuine repentance and confession of sin in the name of Jesus Christ. And David says here that these enemies, they're, they're just mocking God almost. They're calling out in blasphemous calls for his mercy. And David says in verse 42, I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire. That's just muck sewage over the streets. Dust in the wind, sewage in the gutter. It's insignificant. No one wants it. No one pays any attention to it. King David says, that's what my enemies were by the time Yahweh and I were through with them. When will we see this happen? When is the moment when people will cry out and it will be too late? Well, the book of Revelation tells us about it. It's the day of judgment, ultimately. The day when people will cry for the the rocks to fall on them, Revelation talks about. For for the hills to cover them from the judgment of Jesus Christ that will be coming down on the earth. At that moment, friends, it will be too late. And that's what King David is talking about here. the, The judgment of God's king. And you can read of the life of David, the reign of David in 2 Samuel or 1 Chronicles. And you'll see that indeed in many cases he completely destroyed whole nations or tribes so that they didn't exist anymore. In other cases people asked for mercy or became his allies. But in many cases they were all destroyed. And make no mistake friends, there is coming a day when our king will completely destroy his enemies. There will be no time for them to cry out for mercy any longer. Pagan worshippers, child sacrificers, nations full of godless, wicked, dangerous enemies of God's people. One by one, God provided for the king's enemies to be vanquished, to be destroyed. When Jesus was on the earth, of course, he he didn't bring the sword in the way that David describes here. That was, of course, what confused many people about Jesus. He's clearly special. He's clearly powerful. Why isn't he calling us to arms? Why isn't he overthrowing the, the Roman regime? The answer was that Jesus did not come the first time to establish a kingdom by flesh and blood, but to establish a spiritual kingdom to proclaim good news. But nonetheless, Jesus came to win a spiritual war. He came to vanquish Satan, sin and death. The decisive battle in that war has been won at Calvary. The old illustration is that D-Day has already happened. V-E Day is still to come. When all Christ's remaining enemies will be completely destroyed. Christian, be encouraged by this. We should have no qualms at all about singing about the total destruction of the king's enemies. Do we not long for the kingdom to come? We're commanded to pray for the kingdom to come. Christian, do you know that you are going to defeat Satan? Do you know that for all the victories the devil has had over you, you're going to have the final say over him. You're going to see him defeated in the end. You're going to see him vanquished. Christian, do you know that death won't keep your body in the grave forever? Won't keep our loved ones in the grave forever if their faith is in Jesus Christ? Do you know that he's going to raise you 
and all his people to new life, everlasting life. And someday we will get to laugh at death and say, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Dear Christian, do you know that your great enemy of sin is a defeated enemy? It doesn't always feel like that, does it? When we're in the the heat of temptation, when we have that feeling during the week, no, I can't believe I've done that again or said that again or thought that again. At those times, it doesn't feel like we're victorious over our enemy of sin, but we are. And we have the equipping, as we've already thought about, to defeat sin any time temptation comes our way. And one day, sin will not even be a memory. Alistair Begg, a popular uh, current preacher, he said it this way. I think it's helpful. He says, we have been saved from sin's penalty. We are daily being saved from sin's power. And one day we're going to be saved from sin's presence. That's a great way to think about where we stand in relation to this struggle against sin. We have been saved from sin's penalty. That's the penalty of death and hell. That's, that's done with. We're saved from that already. We are being saved from sin's power. It's growing weaker and weaker in us as Christians. And one day we are going to be saved from sin's presence. It won't be in our lives at all anymore. God has provided a king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has vanquished our enemies and who will vanquish our remaining enemies. The day will come when we never have to think about them again. And so, dear friend, walk in victory this week. Your sinful desires, whatever they are, though they are sometimes very strong, they don't, they don't define us and they don't have to get the victory over us. Your great adversary, the devil, though he may be smarter and more experienced and cunning, he is a dead dog. And even death itself is not something to fear if you belong to Jesus Christ. God has provided a way for our enemies to be vanquished, destroyed, Utterly. So a king equipped for battle, a king's enemies vanquished, and thirdly and finally, a king exalted over the nations. A king exalted over the nations. If you look again at verse 43, you made me the head of the nations. People I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Mentioned at the beginning, some foreigners did indeed become uh, servants of David. In fact, in some cases, they were among his closest allies. Uh, If you read the list of David's 30 mightiest men, for example, 2 Samuel 23, uh, some of them were not Israelites by birth. Uh, Rather heartbreakingly, in fact, Uriah the Hittite, the man whose death David arranged because of his wife Bathsheba, uh, Uriah was actually one of David's 30 mightiest men, and he was not an Israelite by birth. And so David did indeed become the head of nations, the the chosen king of foreign people, at least a few foreign people. Not many kings in the ancient world managed to do that. But once again, David does not hog the credit for this. If you look at verse 49, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. It's God who has done this for him. It's God who has made him A ruler not just of Israel but of foreigners. And whether they are from Israel or whether they are foreigners, David wants them to know about Yahweh. 
He certainly doesn't want them to bow down and worship him, a mere man, but to bow down and worship the living God who had provided David with victory. And you see, friends, this is what the kingdom of Israel was always supposed to be. Even in Old Testament times, it was to be a light to all the nations. It was to be an example, a signpost to all the nations of what, all, what we are all supposed to do. Worship and serve the one true and living God. Listen to the words of Isaiah the prophet. This is centuries after the life of David, but the message is the same. Isaiah 2 verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. That's what Jerusalem, that's what the nation of Israel was supposed to be at. A living, breathing witness to the nations of the people who truly do know and love their God. And David, to a remarkable extent, fulfilled that purpose. His kingship was a high point in Israel's history. It was a moment in time when the nation was indeed a witness to the world of the greatness of God and his word and his power. But again... What was true of David in some measure is all the more true of the reign of King Jesus. In Romans 15 verse 9, the Apostle Paul quotes from Psalm 18 where he says that Jesus came into the world so that Gentile nations would glorify God. He refers to Psalm 18 as he says that. You want to see a king ruling over multiple peoples, multiple nations? Just look at our world today. King Jesus is followed and worshipped and proclaimed in more countries, by more people, in more cultures than anyone else in the history of the world. Here we are in this room tonight. A little group of people in the northeast corner of a tiny little island on the edge of Europe, on the face of the Atlantic Ocean. Thousands of years and thousands of miles away from when Jesus walked the earth. And yet we are here to praise the Lord in full view of the world around us. Before we we even got up this morning, people were doing the same thing in Australia, New Zealand and Japan and China. They've been doing it in dark rooms for fear of the government intruding or in huge stadiums for all to see. (coughs) See, the cynics and the critics of Christianity only show their ignorance when some of them try to claim that uh, Christianity is just a tradition or just a part of white Western culture. Our faith and our message cross cultures and borders. Our King has won the hearts and minds of all kinds of people from across all kinds of nations. And the message we preach this evening is the same as David's. Verse 46. The Lord lives And blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. And in our culture, friends, that is still so mixed up, hyped up, broken up, sexed up, that is the message that we boldly proclaim this evening. That's why we read earlier from Revelation 7 verse 9, 
After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. We have a God who has provided a way for us to be part of that great multitude, singing praise to the Lamb who was slain at the cross and glorified at the resurrection. And what a challenge for us to be as David and his kingdom were in their day, to be a witness to the world around us of the salvation of Jesus Christ. Is that your life's purpose? Is that what keeps us going, parents, on those wearying days? We are witnessing, we are instructing the next generation about the salvation of Jesus Christ. Is that what we pray for and seek to be a part of in this congregation? That we are witnessing to this community around us of the good news of Jesus Christ. That what we pray for in our nation. That whoever the next prime minister would be. Whoever's in the next cabinet. That they would humble their hearts and bow the knee to the king of this nation and of all nations. The Lord Jesus Christ. In a time when people are. Concerned with themselves and how they feel and how they look and how they're perceived. In a time when our leaders are trying to sell their own paltry achievements. We have a far greater leader to celebrate this evening. We are made to worship and praise God, the rock of our salvation. And so by his grace, friends, may we do it. May we face our enemies each day knowing that they are vanquished enemies. That our king has defeated for us Satan, sin and death. And that in him we are victorious. Amen.